You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Well, the kids are with us this morning, um, so you guys are going to hang out here um, because we love you. Um, Sometimes parents' love is a little hard to understand. Uh, It is good that you're here, and we want you to be able to join with us and to hear from God's Word and to join your parents in that. Um, Parents, thank you. Um, We know this is an added burden on you. Part of it gives a rest to our children's ministry teachers. Part of it is that we want our kids here together. It's Family Worship Sunday. We value that, and we totally understand that means there's going to be some extra noise this morning. That's all right. We embrace it. Um, if, if you need to discipline, slip out back, do what you need to do, that's just part of being a family. Um, I don't know about your family, but my family gather around the table doing uh, after-dinner devotions. Um, all of a sudden, half of them got to pee, and half of them got to drink water, and it's chaos, and that's, that's life together. So we're just going to embrace that this morning. Um, turn to your Bibles with me. Uh, Genesis chapter 1. Uh, if you don't have a Bible on you, just slip up your hand and Kyle will put one into that hand. Um, we want you to have God's Word open in front of you um, as well. Yeah, kids, if you don't have one of the handouts um, or, or grown-ups, um, you, you're allowed to. I printed a ton of them. So grab one of those little fill-ins and... Oh, I don't have candy today. I have failed. Wow, it's been too long. It has been too long. It's my first family worship Sunday back. If you fill out all of the fill-ins, kids, you will have the joy of knowing that you listened and paid attention. Um, And I will say, good job. That's all I got for you today. Next time I will, I promise. All right. Well, this morning as we look at this amazing first chapter of the book of Genesis, first chapter in the Bible, um, what I want to talk about is the contrast of creation. The contrast of creation. Kids, that's your first fill-in right at the top of the list there. Um, Very different people have very different ideas of how we interact with this world, right? Like, what do we do with this world? We're, We're surrounded by all this stuff, right? There's a sky above us filled with birds. There's ground beneath our feet covered in weird, crazy animals. There's an ocean um, filled with even more crazy animals. Um, We're surrounded by this stuff. And and every person who's ever lived at some point has to look around and say, how did I get here? What is it? Where's it from? What's it, what's it all about? Um, where did this come from, and what do we do with it? Right? And those two questions go together, right? They're linked. Give me some help, kids. Um, easy question. How many of you like cookies? Really? There's a bunch of you who don't like cookies? Okay, there we go. It's a little better. All right. What's, what's your favorite kind of cookie? Let me hear some cookies. Monster cookies? Yeah, Logan. Yes, I'm with you. Now, oatmeal or no oatmeal? No oatmeal. That's what my wife thinks. I like a little oatmeal in there, right? There's all kinds of delicious cookies that we love. Now, the world, just like a good cookie, what you do with it depends on where it came from, right? Imagine you walk into your house and there is this beautiful monster cookie or chocolate chip cookie sitting on the counter. What are you going to do with it? Be honest. You're going to eat it, right? You're going to eat it. Now, hold on a second. What if you knew that that little cookie was there because your little sister got it at a birthday party and she brought it home and she was saving it? Now what do you do with it? Uh Uh-oh, some of you are still going to eat it, aren't you? (laughs) Might be a little bit tempted. Okay. What if your sneaky older brother put it there because he pulled it out of the trash can in the back alley and he knocked all the maggots off it and he put it on the counter and he's waiting around the corner to see if you were going to eat it. 
Now what do you do with it? Oh, where it comes from changes what you do with that cookie, right? What if you know that your mom made it because she loves you and she made your favorite kind of cookie and she left that one out there for you? Well, that's kind of nice, right? What you do with that depends on where it came from. Um, how you act depends on what you believe, right? right? What you believe changes the way, uh, it changes how we live. There it is. That's the phrase from your fill-in. What we believe changes how we live. So different people believing different things about our world live in very different ways. Some people look out at the stars and they, and they look at the stars and they try to tell our past. Where did we come from? Other people look at the stars and they try to tell the future. What's going to happen? Can we see it in the stars? Um, where are we going? Some people uh, live like this world is ours to destroy. And, and they just throw their garbage out the window and they live gross lives destroying the world. Other people think um, that maybe it would be better if humans were extinct so that the world would be cleaner and better. Some people spend their whole lives just trying to get everything, all the best stuff, the nicest cars, uh, the best clothes, the best food and, and drink and, and as much of it as they can. Other people don't own a car on purpose. They, they wear uncomfortable clothes on purpose. They eat a little tiny bit of not very good food on purpose. And, and all these different perspectives come from different understandings of where this world came from. So it's important. This, this matters to know where the world came from, how we got here, um, so, that we, so that we know how to live in it properly. So first, I want us to just look at the creation. Look at the creation, this, this, this chapter of, of Scripture. We're just going to walk through um, verses 3 through to 25. Um, there are all kinds of guesses of where the world came from, how we got here. Um, in the Bible, we found the only eyewitness account, right? God was there. And God is saying, this is what I did. Here's how this world came about. Here's how it happened. Um, and, and so, verse 1, in the beginning, kids, anyone know what that word is in the fill-in? Where are you? In the beginning, God. There we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, we looked at Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. Um, in the beginning, God was already there. He created this world out of nothing. Um, he brought it into existence. Then we looked at uh, verses 3 to 5. God spoke, and by his word, he created light. Um, this week, we're going we're to look at the rest of the creation account. We're going to go from day one all the way through to halfway through day six. Um, creation of everything right up until mankind, and we're going to spend a little bit more time on God's creation of people. Um, so that's what we're after this morning. The first thing, we just want to walk through these verses and understand what's going on here. Before we do that, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have told us uh, everything we need to know for life and godliness, to follow you, to honor you, to live in this world as we ought to live. Thank you that you uh, have revealed to us in your word um, the miracle of creation and, and all of these amazing details that we have. Um, God, I pray that you would give us wisdom as we read your word, that we would see your truth. God, I pray that you would give us boldness and courage uh, in a world that does not accept this truth, um, that we would see it, that we would believe it, that we would trust you. And God, even this morning as we look into your word, um, that you would give us um, a, bigger, a bigger vision of who you are and the wonder um, of who you are through this uh, amazing world that you've created. Um, God, speak now by your word. Um, pray that everything I say would be true to your word. God, if there's anything um, that I have prepared that is not from you, God, that those words would fall to the ground, um, but that your spirit would be at work in each of us. Um, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's just take a minute and walk through these creation days. Some of them are simple. Some of them have some, some confusing things in them, and we just want to 
We just want to go verse by verse through these. So day one, starting at verse three, uh, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and he called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. We talked about this, as I said, last week. Um, There's a whole sermon on the website if you want to go back and look at that. Um, The first day, God created light. He spoke, and light came into existence, and then he separated the light from the darkness. Uh, He called the the period of light the day and the darkness the night. And and then there's evening and morning the first day. Second day, verse 6, it says, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters uh, from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. So on the second day, God creates an expanse. It's a weird word thrown in there, isn't it? Um, Maybe your translation says sky. That's not wrong. Um, If you're reading the old King James Version, uh, it has the word firmament. What on earth is a firmament? Well, the funny thing is... um, the, the King James put that word in there, and, and it actually changed the definition of the word. So if you Google firmament, um, it, it's going to say definition is sky or the heavens. Um, now, maybe just a little detail here. When it says the heavens um, or heaven, um, it's talking about the sky. It's the same word in Hebrew, um, but the, the, the sun and the moon and the stars are all created in the heavens. So that's what we're looking at. Um, this idea of the firmament um, it, it used to be, and you can tell just by the word, it used to mean something firm, something hard, something solid. And so there's a group of people who still kind of hold on the idea that the earth is flat. And one of the things they, they keep is that there's a firmament. There is a metal dome over top of this world. And, and they would say, see, um, the Bible says so. Um, I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, there's a lot of debate. There's a lot of talk about the translation and, and, and whatnot. Um, I think that's just a mistranslation. The, the, it went from, from Hebrew to Greek to Latin to English, and, and in there, there was some confusion. The, the Hebrew word, um, it, it does mean, it means something hammered out thin. So that's where they kind of get that idea, right? So if you took a piece of metal, maybe making like gold leaf, you'd hammer it out smooth and thin, um, like a thin piece of metal. And so if you focus on the metal, um, then yeah, you have this idea of a, of a firmament, um, a dome of some kind, something solid. But, but that's not what the word's really talking about. It's talking about something spread out, right? Um, Genesis is written um, from what is called a phenomenological perspective. Yes, I practice that. Kids, anyone want to say phenomenological? I got it twice. Phenomenological. Okay, phenomenological means it's, it's written from the perspective of your experience, okay? So like we say, did you see the sun go down? And someone says, no, the sun didn't go down. The world turned. Yeah, we know. And actually even the nerdiest scientist will say, wow, that was a great sunset. But that's not what actually happened, right? The world turned so that we lost view of the sun, but we talk about it phenomenologically. We talk about the sun going up and down. Um, that's, that's kind of the perspective that Genesis is written from. And, and so as, as he talks about the sky, it looks like it's just kind of spread out over top of us. It's smooth and, and big. Um, and so um, as Moses is writing Genesis 1, he, he's not making a scientific statement about the sky. He, he's saying it's, it's, it's spread out. Um, God spread out the sky. Psalm 104.2 uses similar language, speaks of God stretching out the heavens like a tent. So God creates this expanse. The sky is, is made, and he spreads out the heavens above the earth. And there's another odd statement in day two. The expanse, the sky, is made in the midst or in the middle of the waters. What? It separates the waters under the expanse from the waters over the expanse. What is he talking about? Um, we've been up to space. It's not wet. Um, now, some people, again, want to like stick 
really doggedly literal, and they say, no, no, there, if we would go out far enough, there's a layer of water out there. Um, I, I don't think that's necessary. Uh, I don't think that's logical as we look at, at the word here. Um, it, it could simply be as easy as the sea below and the, the clouds above, right? There's, there's moisture in the heavens. There, there, there are clouds. There's humidity. Um, it's the sky, there's also a third option, and, and this one's a little bit speculative, okay? This is a guess. This is us just trying to put things together, but, but I kind of like it. Uh, the theory, and it's, again, it's just a theory, just a guess, that when God originally created, there was a heavy blanket of water uh, in the atmosphere up high. And because of that, um, there would be this kind of heavy atmospheric pressure and uh, the oxygen content kind of comes up a little bit, and, and that would cause people to live longer. That would cause large animals with small lungs, like dinosaurs, to be able to thrive. Um, we, we see that, like in the barometric pressure tanks they do today for, for helping people heal. Um, and, and so it may be then that blanket that fell in Genesis 7 when God talks about the windows of the heavens opening and rain falls for 40 days and the earth is flooded. Um, it, it might be the loss of that blanket collapsing. And at that point, after the flood, human lifespans shorten from hundreds of years down to 120 years. Um, dinosaurs go extinct. It's just a guess, but I think those pieces kind of fit together neatly, so i throw that out there. Um, but there's day two. God creates this expanse, and he separates the waters above from the waters below. He, he creates a space for life. Uh, and on day two um, is actually the only place where God doesn't say it was good. He, he doesn't finish this with good. It, it just the day ends because uh, he's not done with the waters yet. He's still doing more water stuff. And so that kind of holds on uh, until day three. Day three comes in two parts. Starts in verse nine. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas and God saw that it was good. So there comes the it was good. Now he's separated the waters even more and, and, and he makes the seas and the dry lands, the seas and the dry land. Um, gathering the water into one place doesn't mean like it was all one ocean. It's just he's gathered it together, and, and that's why seas there is still plural. Um, and then the second part of day three comes, verse 11. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the third day. So the second half of day three, God creates plants vegetation, trees, um, and, and this marks a, a transition in the, in the progress of creation, right? If you remember back to verse 2, um, God created the, the world, originally this kind of blank canvas, and, and he says that it's without form and void. So without form means it's chaotic. Everything is, is crazy, there's no rules, there's no boundaries, and, and it's out, there's no shape, there's no order. And then void means that it's empty. It's like, a, it's like an empty desert. There's nothing there. And then as the Lord begins into creation, days one and two and the first half of day three is all about bringing form. He's bringing structure and order. He's, he's bringing shape into the shapelessness. And you see this, this idea of God separating, running through it, right? He creates the light and then he separates the light and the darkness. He puts boundaries and he creates the expanse and he, and he separates the waters above from the waters below, uh, making room for life. And then he, and he gathers the water together and he says, this is the land and this is the water. He's, he's giving shape and order. He's bringing form into the formlessness. And then days one to three, um, God gave the world order. 
right? Sorry, that's what I just, God gave the word world order, if you can get that in your fill-in. Um, and here in the second half of day three, he moves from form to formlessness to, to bringing fullness into the emptiness, fullness into the emptiness. He, he begins to create plants and animals and eventually people. Um, so days three to six, God gives the world fullness. And I'm sorry, you guys don't have that on your fill-in. If you're looking for it, you can write it in for bonus points. Um, so he moves from this kind of order to fullness. And this shift right here is where that happens. Um, God filling the land with vegetation. Day four picks up in, in verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. So there's, there's kind of this symmetry to the days of creation. If you've, if you've not seen that before, days uh, four, five, and six follow kind of in the same order uh, as days one, two, and three. Um, so day one is light, day two is sky and waters, day three is land and sea. And, and then there's that same progression. Day four fills that, that sky with light and darkness, with, with sun, moon, and stars. Day five fills, sorry, so day, yeah, day one is the light. Uh, day four is the sun, moon, and stars. Um, day two is the, the sky. Day five is filling the sky and the waters with birds and fish. Uh, and then day six, he fills the land with animals and humans. So um, day four, God creates the sun, the moon, and the stars. And the sun and the moon uh, give light to the earth. Um, they, they give this perfect rhythm and, and balance to day and night. The stars, the planets, all in perfect synchronization, moving through the galaxies, um, marking days and months and years in perfect timing. And then day five begins uh, in verse 20. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms, swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. So day five, God creates birds and fish. And you can see here that God distinguishes um, between plant life and animal life um, because he doesn't just say it was good. He goes on to bless the animal life, to say be, be fruitful and, and multiply, and fill the skies, fill the seas. And, and that brings us to day six. Um, day six begins, verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. So day six, God creates the animals. Now God fills the land with livestock and cows and horses and sheep, creeping things, bugs and insects. Yes, God even created the spiders. Um, the beasts of the earth, all these wondrous animals, he, he created all of them. And once again, God declares, this is good. This is good. And we're going we're gonna to pause there. We're going to leave um, the creation of humanity, the rest of day six, uh, for another day. Um, but this is God's creation story. This is the world created in, in six days. Um, talked last week. I, I think those days are literally days. God connects the 
evening and morning, and he points to the the sun and the moon and the stars. I think they're literal 24-hour days. Everything around us was brought into existence by God's perfect command. That's the creation. Now, let's, let's give some thought to this idea of the contrast here. The contrast. Because I think... This is a big part of what's going on as, as God is, is spelling this out. Um, I mentioned two weeks ago, there, there are a number of old stories, old, old tales of how the world came to be, right? So there are stories from the Egyptians, from the Mesopotamians, from the Sumerians, uh, and from others. And we looked at uh, verse 2 uh, a couple weeks ago and noted how some scholars look at verse 2 and they say there's, there's connection here to these old myths, this talk of darkness and the deep sea and the, and the picture of chaos there, those are all themes that show up in these other stories as well. And, and so some of them say, well, Genesis is nothing new. This is just those old stories told again. Moses is just doing his own version of those stories. Um, but I think those similarities are there a little bit, and I, and I think it's on purpose. Um, help me out, kids. Um, who knows? Um, who wrote the book of Genesis? I might have even said it. Moses wrote the book of Genesis. Okay, now who knows the story of Moses well? Where did Moses go to school? Anyone know where Moses went to school? Was it, was it old? Egypt. You're an old kid, but actually that's pretty accurate. Uh, <laughs> he went to school in Egypt. He was, he was educated in the royal courts in Egypt. Um, he knew these stories. He, he would have known the stories of Egypt, the stories of the, the Mesopotamians and the Sumerians. Um, he would have been exposed to those at, at school. Now, Moses also had a faithful Jewish mother who raised him, and she would teach him about the one true God. Wow, there's the power of a mom in the face of a corrupt school system. Awesome. Um, and so he knew. He knew the true God. He knew this story, and, and, and when God used Moses to write down this creation story, he wrote it in such a way that there is this distinct contrast against the, the creation stories, against these false religions of his day. So let's just look at this ancient contrast and how that kind of plays out as, as the Lord uses Moses to write this story down. Um, almost every other culture in that day worship the sun, moon, and stars. Those were like gods to them. And, and you can just imagine not knowing um, the sun or what it was, and, and so they worshiped them. The sun in particular is our source of, of light and, and warmth. It melts the snow. It helps the crops to grow. Um, but day one, not only does the Lord create the light, showing that he has the power over the light, he does it without the sun. He's just flexing. I am that powerful. This is a mic drop moment for the Lord. You worship the sun, I bring light without the sun. They worship the sun, God created the light. Day two, God creates the heavens, the, the expanse of the sky. Well, these other religions with their imaginary gods, where do you think their gods lived? They lived out in the sky. They lived out in the heavens. Well, their imaginary gods lived in the sky. The Lord created the sky. One of the Canaanite gods was called Prince Yom, and, uh, and he was a, a deification of the sea. They looked at the sea, and it was scary and terrifying and uncontrollable. Again, they don't have submarines and scuba gear, so if there's a violent storm and you go over into the sea, like you are gone, and nobody knows where, and we can't find you again. Um, they, the, the sea was powerful and uncontrollable, and, and so they were scared of the sea, and they worshipped the sea. There we go. I flipped two pages. Sorry. They worship the sea. Day three, what does God do? He puts the sea in his place. See, you're going to move over here and no further, and this will be the dry land. He controls it. He gives it boundaries. Day four, God creates the sun, moon, and the stars. Again, all the ancient cultures worship these planets and stars as, as gods. Moses just kind of downplays it. The sun and the moon, it's kind of interesting. Um, there are Hebrew names for the sun and the moon. He could have used those. But those names are very similar to the Akkadian or the Babylonian names for their sun god and their moon god. 
And so Moses doesn't even use the names for the sun and the moon. He just says like the larger light and the smaller light. He, he kind of downplays it. They're just lights. They're just other things that God created. Far from being gods, they're just part of creation. Stars, planets, um, they were often used to, to tell the future. But even the stars and the planets serve God. They serve him. They do the work that he designed for them to do, just marking off the days and the months and the years. Day five, this, this funny detail in the middle uh, of it, which is really odd. Um, how many of you kids believe in sea monsters? Maybe. We think of sea monsters out of fairy tales, right? Sea monsters, um, th- those are from strange imaginary movies. Um, well, it's pretty cool. Um, does anyone have an NASB translation? Somebody reading from NASB? Nobody? Kyle? What does the NASB say? Read this, the first part of verse 21. You have sea monsters in your Bible. Great sea monster. That's awesome. There are sea monsters in the Bible. The, the Hebrew word there is tanin. Uh, it could be translated as serpent um, or monster. Um, and it usually speaks of this large, powerful creature that lived in the sea. Um, you've heard the, the Leviathan from Job, uh, the, the tan on the end of Leviathan. That's, that's tanin. This, that's the sea monster. Now, I know nothing about this, okay? I am not a... I am not a paleontologist, or, or I, but two minutes on Google, and, and I found the picture of what's called a Mosasaurus. That's a skeleton they found. That's a sea monster, okay? Look at that thing. It's huge. It's terrifying. It's snake-like. It swims in the ocean. Now, it's extinct. My wife still won't go swimming in the ocean with me, but it's gone now. You can, you can swim in the ocean. Um, but why does, why does Moses mention that? Like, he already said all the creatures in the sea included that, but like, oh yeah, and that guy, and the sea monsters, and there's probably others. I'm sure there were all kinds of big, scary dinosaur sea monsters that they were scared of. The sea monsters to them were evil gods. Like, they're already terrified of the sea, and then there are these creatures that that come out of the sea. Um, it, It was seen as this, like, dark power not to be controlled. And yet again, this great sea monster, this god of chaos, where did it come from? God created it. He made that too. God even made the sea monsters. Finally, every other creation story, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, uh, it's always about this battle between good and evil, between darkness and light, between chaos and order, and there's this, there's this fight and this struggle to create the world in, in their stories about these false gods. This story is totally different. God simply spoke, and it happened, exactly as he said. He just speaks it in, and he gets what he wants. It happens under his perfect control. There's no battle, there's no struggle here. The Bible's creation account was in direct contrast to all of the other uh, worldly accounts in that day. God was saying, those are not gods. I am God. All the things that you think are powerful, I made them. This account of God creating the world laid out over 25 verses um, are just in absolute contrast to everything in the world. And that continues today, right? There is a modern contrast. This account of God creating the world is in absolute contrast to everything in the world around us. Kids, if you haven't got this in school yet, it's coming. It's coming. Be ready for it. Today our world says creation took billions of years. Eons stacked upon eons. That's fact, In our world today, the Bible says, nope, six days, six days. 
The world says all of the plants and animals around us and even, even we ourselves came about by this slow evolutionary development from nothing to small microorganisms. That's the biggest jump. Getting from nothing to something is really tough. Gradually evolving then into these different creatures. I want you to know something about how God created. Over and over and over again is this little phrase, God created everything according to their kind. According to their kind. Verse 11, in day 3, God says he created the the plants with seeds and trees and fruit, which is their seed. And, And the end of that verse, each according to their kind. He created them all. Day 5, look at verse 21. God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Day 6, verse 25 in particular, And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So did God create an amoeba that, that eventually evolved over millions or billions of years that eventually became all the different animals? No. No, God created the plants according to their kinds. He created the fish and the birds according to their kinds. He created the livestock and the creeping things and the animals all according to their kinds. That doesn't describe millions of years of evolution. God created them according to their kinds, and after he created them, he said, they're good. They're good. They're done. It's complete. There's no more change necessary. This is good. This is what I wanted, and it's what I've got. The world says one thing. The Bible says something radically different. And listen, I know you can jive and and wiggle and, 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 and fit evolution in here if you try really hard. And this is not a salvation issue. It's okay. Um, We can still be friends. We can still get along. Um, But I think if you just read this as it's written, assuming that God is actually trying to tell us something, you don't come out with evolution. I I think you come out with six days of God creating every living creature. And I get it. There's some hard questions to answer. And, and, And it's easy to feel really alone, and really vulnerable. Kids, again, those of you in school, um, or if you're heading off to to university, you're going to feel this. You're going to get this hard. The day is going to come. You might be the only one. Think about this. Imagine yourself there. Maybe there's a couple of you in the class. Maybe it's just you, and the teacher is going to make fun of you for this, for sure. Evolution is a fact. Everyone knows it. It's not even something we question. And, and you, this like first-year student, simple, uneducated, you're going to be the one to say this is wrong? Really? To believe God is to stand in contrast to this world. It's to stand in absolute contrast to this world. And I remember years ago, um, I had just just started out as a pastor, and uh, I was in this theology discussion group that got together once a month to talk about different, different topics, and uh, these were smart guys. I was way out of my league. I was invited by a friend. Um, these guys were PhDs. They were professors at the local seminary. Most of them had written books that were published, um, and, and, and one day, um, the, the topic that we were going to talk about was creation. I was the only one who believed that God created the world in six days and, and, in, oh, and thousands of years ago, not millions of years ago. And I remember one guy just grilling me one after another after another and, and, and pushed me on this point and, and said, um, finally, his one argument was, then why does the world look old? Right? When we study geology and the fossil record and all of these things, it so obviously looks old. And if the world isn't old, but it looks old, doesn't that make God a liar? Doesn't that make God dishonest? 
that he made the world to look older than it is? I was beat. I didn't have an answer for him. I I was intimidated. I was scared. Um, I couldn't respond. I felt foolish and stupid. And and at least in my memory of it, which maybe has shifted over the years, um, the other men just kind of sat back and smiled. There he goes. We put this young punk in his place. Um, We've proven him wrong. I went home discouraged and, and, and embarrassed, and I was telling the story to my wife, and uh, she's so great. She just sees through these things in, in just the most simple, beautiful way. And she, and, and, and she pointed me back to Genesis 1, and she said, dishonest? Really? They, they think it would make God a liar because we think it looks old, even though he told us he created it in six days? How, how is that God's problem? He told us plain and simple. It's right there on the page. And it really is that simple. God said it. I believe it. God said it. I believe it. I can't prove it. I can't go toe-to-toe with the scientists today. That's, I don't know that. I don't understand those things. You're right. But God said it. I believe it. There's some helpful resources mentioned before. The website called Answers in Genesis has all kinds of really smart scientists writing things that I don't understand, digging into the science behind, um, looking at evolution. And actually, there's a lot of problems in that theory too. But you know what? That's not the point. God said it. What more do I need? There's this wonderful promise in the Bible. It shows up a few times. One of those times is Psalm 25, verse 3. David says this of the Lord. Indeed, no one who waits for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. None who wait for the Lord will be put to shame. You can substitute the word wait for trust. It's the same idea there. Those who trust in the Lord, they won't be put to shame. Now, there might be shame in the moment, It might be awkward. It might be really uncomfortable. You might be embarrassed at the time. You might feel foolish in your classroom, around your friends, or around your your work colleagues as you trust the Lord. But ultimately, in the end, when when it really matters, when we stand before the judgment of the Lord, those who trusted in Him will not be put to shame. In that day, those who simply believe His word as true will be honored, will stand confidently, in the Lord, and they'll be vindicated. Uh, Paul says, Romans 3, 4, let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Even if the whole world is telling the same lie, God's still true. He's still right. I'm, I'm going with him. And you know what? Even if you were able somehow to to squeeze into the six days of creation and and make evolution fit and make sense and, 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 and try to put it together with the Bible, you still haven't won anything. You still don't have the world on your side. They're not going to come to you and and congratulate you for getting it right. Because you still have to deal with Genesis one one, the most basic part of the whole thing. That's the real issue. The biggest contrast is the simple statement that in the beginning, God. That's where the problem actually begins. The world today says that that we're here by random choice, random chance, some accident of the universe. And and because of that, um, we thank no one and we are accountable to no one. The Bible says in the beginning, God. As long as you believe verse 1, as long as you're starting from that premise, a God who created this world and who rules over it, you will be in absolute contrast to the entire system of the world. The reason they cling so tightly to this theory of evolution, the reason that it is not okay to question it, not ever, is that there can't be a God. If there is a God, then we're accountable 
to someone. If there's a God, then we are not the ultimate beings in this universe. If there's someone else that we have to answer to, he's more than just a creator, just kind of setting it into motion. He's the owner, he's the lawgiver, and he's the judge. And the world will never, never accept that truth. Listen to Romans 1, 18 to 23, longer section, but just listen to what Paul writes. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. If there's a creation, there must be a creator. It is that simple. His divine nature is obvious in the things that he's created. His fingerprints are all over it. So there's no excuse. There's no excuse. No one can say, I didn't know there was a God. I didn't know there was a creation, creator. Well, you are his creation. You're walking in his creation. It's painfully obvious. The problem is that they, it is not that they don't know him. It's not that they're unaware that there is a God. The problem is, in Paul's words, they suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. It's not that they don't believe, it's that they won't believe. They refuse to believe. They suppress the truth. They, they push it down. We will not admit that there's a God. That's not going to happen. And they take the glory that, that God deserves for his wonderful creation, and they give that glory to created things. They worship the creation rather than the creator. And that's just the reality of the sinful heart. The heart that is dead in sin, that, that worships self. The creation story is an absolute contrast to this world. It breaks that down. It runs absolutely across the grain. If you're going to believe it, even a little bit of it, even the most basic fact that there is a God, you have to be ready to be an absolute contrast to this world. Now, you don't have to be a jerk about it, right? You don't have to be obnoxious. You can just be quietly, confidently, humbly solid in it, knowing that, that those who trust him will not be put to shame. Okay, we disagree. This is what I think. Maybe I can give you some reasons. We can look together at, this, at some, some different articles. We can talk about it. But this is what I believe. That's the creation and that's the, the contrast that we're going to find ourselves in with this world. I want to talk just a little bit about the consequence. We're going to chase this out further next week. But, but so what? If this world is created by God, how then do we treat it? And, and number one is we embrace it. We embrace the, the creator and the creation. First, we embrace the creator. We admit you're, you're God. You made this. You made me. You're over it. You rule it. You have the right to reign. And I need to bend my knee to you. I don't get to say this is right and that is wrong. I, I have to look to you for that. And we embrace the creation. Just like the cookie on the counter. What do we do with this world? How we, how we treat it depends on where it came from. I want to just anchor in, in one repeated phrase here throughout this passage. Seven times through the seven days of creation, God says, and it was good. It's good. God created it, and it's good. If the truth is 
that your mom made the cookies because she knew that you were, they were your favorite cookies and she left one on the counter for you to enjoy, then you should eat it. You should enjoy it. You should be happy about it. You should thank your mom for it and, and delight in that cookie. God is saying, this world is good. I created it for your enjoyment, for your, for your pleasure. Enjoy it. It means to accept his good gifts. To use it, yes, within the bounds of his design, and we'll get into that more next week, his good rules for us. But we need to get this. So many people think Christianity, right, belief in, in God, is all about this, this angry God who wants to make sure nobody has any fun and make sure everybody's drab and sour and, and drudgery. That's not it. That's not, that is Satan's twisting of, of who God is. God made a good world because he loves us and he wants us to enjoy it. And though our sin has brought death and brokenness and suffering into this world, and though we have twisted it and and misused it to our harm, Christ came. He died on the cross to to rescue us from our sin to rescue us from the the judgment that we deserve, to rescue us from the corruption and twistedness of sin, even in ourselves, to rescue us from the the hopelessness of suffering in this world, and to bring a new creation starting in us, culminating at the end of this world as we move into a new heavens and a new earth. He did it so that we could have joy. Not not so that we could be drab, unhappy, grumpy people saying no to everything. John 10.10, Jesus said, the the thief, that's Satan, he comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The world says, come on over here. This is going to be great. We're going to go get drunk. We're going to do drugs. We're going to do this or do that. It's going to be wonderful. And you're thinking, that's against God's laws. Are God's laws trying to keep me from all of the fun things? I can't go do those fun things because God's law holds me back? No, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Those things bring death, they bring pain, they bring suffering. God's rule says, no, no, stay over here because this is where my world was created to be enjoyed. This is the goodness of it. This is the the design and the structure that I put in place that you might have a life and have it abundantly. Obedience to God is where true joy is found, not just here in this world, but into eternity that we might fully enjoy his good gifts. This creation has a creator. He made this world and he rules over it and he rules over us. And that is very good. Would you pray with me?